Oh, good morning. I wanted, obviously, to uh, to begin this morning's message uh, by honoring those celebrating Mother's Day this morning. Uh, for those of us who have had the privilege of having uh, God-fearing, faith-based mothers in our lives, we know what a blessing uh, they are to us. I'm extremely blessed to be able to point to both uh, a mother and grandmother this morning as, as two people that have been not only uh, influential in my development from childhood to adulthood, but specifically uh, in my walk with Christ. My hope is that each of you here this morning can point to a loving relationship or fond memories of your mother or someone who fills or has filled that mothering role in your life. These figures in our lives are special and we recognize them today and we say thank you for all that you've done and all that you continue to do for us. And even though the message today isn't tailored uh, towards a Mother's Day theme, uh, I'd be remiss not to take the time this morning uh, to acknowledge our moms today. I mentioned that that the theme of the message is not uh, tailored to the Mother's Day narrative. Uh, In fact, when I, (laughs) to be truthfully honest, when I looked at the calendar and saw that, that I was preaching this morning on Mother's Day, I was not filled with joy. I was, I was, uh, I don't know what the word is, but I didn't, I, and really the reason I say that is a selfish reason. I didn't want to try to, to shoehorn a message towards uh, Mother's Day. I wanted to be able to, to open up the scripture where the spirit had led and, and preach accordingly. So, uh, it, and just, just so no one gets offended this morning, as I look forward in the calendar, I'm also scheduled to do the Father's Day message. So... You guys don't get a special tailored message either. Just heads up. (laughs) So when I think about today's message, I I was led to, uh, I guess, what I could consider to be a favorite verse of mine. I I really don't, uh, just off the cuff, think of things that, uh, in terms of favorite verses. But this one is is one that has really resonated with me, and it has done so for, for quite some time. Uh, and truthfully told, I think this is the first time that I, that I took the time to actually go and research and dig deeper into this passage of Scripture and really ponder its application. And in doing so, I found it to be not just relevant in practical application today, but to me extremely comforting in a current world environment that provides anything but comfort. If you'll turn with me, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 12. Uh, We're going to start in verse 1, and and I'm going to read from the New King James Version. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. It's interesting to note that that here we find Jesus doing what we see illustrated so many times throughout Scripture. He's teaching. And not only is he in communion with his disciples in this particular teaching moment, 
but with crowds that are innumerable in multitude, which is to say so large that they couldn't be accurately uh, accounted or numbered. So large we are heard that it's potentially unsafe. As the scriptures state, they are, they are so, so large they trampled one another. Jesus begins with the topic of hypocrisy, lightening it to leaven. And we know that it only takes a small amount of leavening ingredient to leaven the entire loaf. And in turn, a small amount of hypocrisy can affect a large amount of people. Jesus' stance on the topic of hypocrisy in this illustration is twofold. As we've seen him both rebuke the Pharisees of their hypocrisy, but also serves as a warning for the disciples themselves. The topic of hypocrisy struck me as funny in in today's current climate, as we're seemingly constantly bombarded by conflicting and contradicting news stories that seemingly change to fit the narrative of the day. Jesus continues on saying, whatever is spoken in the dark will be heard in the light and things spoken in the ear proclaimed on the housetops. We can hide nothing from God. Amen. Those of you who didn't say amen, obviously have something you think you're hiding from God. (laughs) But I'm challenged uh, this morning to think of how differently our lives would be impacted if we only spoke things as if they were going to be broadcast from the rooftops. Or maybe a more modern illustration would be if if our words, our secrets, uh, were going to be published on the internet for all to see. I would like to think it would make us more cautious, less quick to judge, that our words would become ultimately more measured. And I'm not talking about the anonymousness that, that is offered by a faceless computer screen or keyboard warriors that inflame and promote agendas. I'm talking about things that are known only to us Things we feel are secret, gossips, true feelings broadcast in real time. What impact would that have on our mindset or on our actions? Jesus continues on in verse 4. He says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will show, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not, therefore, do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Having dealt with the topic of hypocrisy, Jesus moves on to the topic of fear. And even though there's a large crowd of people, we sense that Jesus is speaking directly to the disciples. As we read through this passage, think of the crowd as as an audience watching this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. We see these topics flow into each other in the sense that those who are hypocritical will often oppose the faithful it is surmised that Jesus is readying the disciples for the persecution that is to follow. For Jesus knew as he spoke these very words to them that all of them, with the exception of John, would face martyrs' deaths for him. It is easily assumed that the increasing anxiety and stress the disciples faced leading up to Christ's crucifixion may have prompted 
these words as an act of reassurance, instilling the same peace Jesus has and putting their fear into perspective. And it is God whom we should have the fear of as the one who defines our eternal resting place. I want to stop and emphasize for a moment that fear used in this manner is defined as a feeling of respect or wonder for something very powerful, not as an emotional response to being afraid of something. It is God who garners our respect as only he is worthy, not man, not human persecution. Jesus displays the contrast between God and man in regards to which should be more feared or respected. And while we live in a world that continues to devalue the truth and who God is or that God is, please let there be no doubt in your minds this morning as to what God take, what place God takes in your life. Jesus goes on to emphasize our value to God, that he knows us so intimately that he knows even the number of hairs on our heads. Can you imagine that? It is said that we are born, we, the human being, an average human being is born with about 100,000 scalp hair follicles. But the number of hairs actually vary depending on your natural hair color. People with darker hair average 100,000 to 110,000 hairs. Blondes average the most at 150,000 hairs. And redheads the fewest at around 90,000. So to those people in my household thinking they're the cause of my receding hairline, joke's on you. God gave me less to start with. (laughs) But what a comfort to know that the God who made the universe knows each of us this well, this intimately. And if he knows us well enough to the smallest detail of how many hairs are on our heads, how much more does he know the more important things? Jesus continues in verse 8. Also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus again moves from one topic to another, this time in regards to the topic of confession. With the idea that the angels of God surround his throne, Jesus explains the reward given to those faithful enough to proclaim him before men as as the Son of Man will in turn confess them before the angels of God. But in stark contrast, those who deny the Lord before men will also be denied before the angels of God. I feel that Jesus' words again are, are to provide comfort for his disciples as he understood that they would first face persecution in both the civic er area and as well as the religious arena. The persecution of Jesus Christ and his disciples had already began at the time these words were spoken. And it continues on to this very day. Not only do we see biblical accounts of the disciples' persecution, but also historical 
but also historical accounts of Christian persecution ever since. And we know that it's something that will continue until the Lord returns. Jesus' words were proven to be resonant in the disciples' lives, but that doesn't mean they also won't have the same necessity in our own lives. Picking back up in verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's an interesting change of direction we see illustrated here. Jesus in the midst of addressing his disciples is interrupted by someone in this multitude. I envision this individual being a part of the crowd that day for this very purpose. And while Jesus while Jesus has been focusing on our great value to God and the importance in standing for him, this man has grown impatient and interrupts requesting Jesus settle a financial dispute. It is so out of place to me that it seems almost comical. Bible scholars tell us that according to the law of the day, the elder brother received about two thirds of the inheritance while the younger brother a third. With this knowledge, one can assume that this man is obviously the younger sibling and is imploring Jesus to render a judgment of what he considered to be fair. In this situation, taking his side versus his brother. And I can't help but smile to myself when I, when I read passages like this because uh, this interaction with Jesus, I'm amazed that he's always so quick to reply. And I laugh at myself thinking, of course, He has a ready-made answer. He knew the question before it was asked. But he says to this man, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Jesus goes on to further illustrate this point in verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In this parable, we assume that the fertile ground the man was blessed with, along with some hard work, had accounted for him being financially successful. So much so that he has a problem. He is struggling with an abundance of resources as his current current barns won't even hold the amount of crops. This troubles the man. Often we think of troubles as having too little of a resource. In this instance, this man is just as troubled with the overabundance of crops as if he had nothing to eat at all. There's modern day examples of individuals who come into large sums of money a lottery winning or inheritance only for the story to be told of how miserable their lives became afterwards and seemingly always to the same conclusion that they end up back where they started having wished it had never happened to begin with. 
Oh, to be so unfortunate. I've often joked that I've, while I've never been wealthy monetarily, I bet I could be really, really good at it. <laughs> anyway, we see that this man comes up with a plan. He'll tear down the current overflowing barns and build greater and store all of his crops and goods. Sounds like a solid plan. It makes sense to, in- to increase capacity for the overwhelming abundance he has. And this plan makes him happy. He's so pleased with himself that he decides that after this is accomplished, he's going to retire. No, he's going to retire and enjoy life to the fullest. Imagine his surprise when he died before carrying out his plan. God calls the man a fool and tells him that this very night your soul will be required of you. And just like that, at the snap of a finger, all of his planning all of his hard work, all of his wealth was for naught. God categorizes the man as a fool, not because he was rich and had abundance, but because the man lived without any awareness of or preparation for eternity. Where the world would think this man a great success, eternity proved this man foolish in placing so much emphasis on the material things in his life. Interestingly enough, God asked the man, whose, whose will those things be which you have provided? You see, for all of his hard work, for all of his planning, the material things were in the end orphaned. They didn't belong to God because the man never surrendered those things to God and they didn't belong to the rich man because he couldn't take them with him. Jesus says, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich man in this parable thought it was all for him. My crops, my barns, my goods, even my soul. Everything was about him. Nothing was about God. And in the end, he was left with no crops, no barns, no goods, and a soul that was dead. The rich man's problem was not that he had treasure on earth, but that he was not rich towards God. Being rich towards God is categorized in sacrificially giving to those in need and by trusting in Jesus for every necessary thing. Revelation 3:17 and 18 says, "Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, Blind and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. The trap of earthly riches can cause us to lose focus and reliance on God. It can lead us to think more highly of ourselves than we should. And keep us from going after heavenly riches. Paul writes in 1 Timothy. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. On second thought, maybe I wouldn't be so good at being earthly wealthy after all. We'll finish up today's passage with verses 22 through 34. Then he said to the disciples, 
Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more valuable are you than the, rave, than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. I love this passage. Jesus provides his disciples a loving command when he tells them, do not worry. We tend to underappreciate the damage worry does in our lives. Studies show that stress deteriorates our immune systems, affects fertility, prolonged stress impacts the brain's ability to respond to future stress. And stress has been linked to sudden uh, heart failure. Jesus warns against worry. After all, if God provides for the birds and takes care of them, how much more should we expect that God will take care of us? Jesus previously illustrated how much more valuable we are to God than the birds. It is proposed that the worry people have over material things of life is a reflection of their low understanding of the value of their value before God. They simply don't comprehend how much he loves and cares for them. Jesus asks what worrying does and by which of you by worrying can add even one cubit to his stature. I think obviously this is meant to be rhetorical as we can add nothing to our lives by worrying. Worry is considered to be the most self-defeating and useless of all sin. And if God so clothes the grass and takes care of the flowers, then so too we are to be confident in his care and provision for us. Now, a couple of things I'd like to point out. God does provide for the birds. That doesn't mean the birds sit with open mouths waiting for him to fill them. And God provides for the flowers and grass which again doesn't mean that every day is sunny and that there are no rain or clouds. After all, flowers and grass would die quickly with no rain. But even through all of this, God provides these things and provides for each of us. And we should have great faith that he would do just that. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, do not let that resemble your attitude this morning. Spurgeon states that little faith is not a little fault for it greatly wrongs the Lord and sadly grieves the fretful mind to think the Lord who clothes the lilies will leave his own children naked is shameful. Oh, little faith, learn better manners. Don't you love it when Spurgeon yells at you? This passage of scripture resonates with me personally for a couple of different reasons in my life. I've given in to worry And there have been times that I continue to worry about things long after I've said I've given them to the Lord. I've fallen into the trap of laying things that I can't control at the foot of the cross only to pick them back up again. And there have been times when I have refused to exercise the faithfulness needed 
to allow God to be in control, even though I know better. These verses help me be cognizant of that, that I need to replace my own worry with faithfulness because my worry is a foothold that I allow for the enemy to use against me. These verses also provide a great peace to me to know that God in his loving mercy will provide my needs even so much more than the birds or the flowers. When our home was was being built, Ty had the idea for each of us to think of several verses to write on the framework of the house before the the drywall went up. And this is one of mine. And while many of the verses penned that day were short, I think I covered about two plus feet, including this this passage on one of the unexpecting two-by-fours. We'll close in these last verses. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind for all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus implores us not to have an anxious mind. It's an interesting word choice that is not so easily explained This word is translated as doubtful, is not used anywhere else in the New Testament, and comes from the Greek word meteorus. I probably butchered that, but the root word being meteor, potentially meaning hang, not in suspense as meteors do in the air, not certain whether to hang or fall to the ground. Considering the uncertainty of such a proposition, the word anxious seems to be the perfect word choice. Spurgeon again so eloquently admonishes the reader, asking, you say that you cannot help be anxious. Then, my dear friend, I must solemnly ask you, what is the difference between you and a man of the world? We're told not to seek after food or drink, for the nations of the world seek after these things, and our Father already knows that we need them. We are to concern ourselves with seeking first the kingdom of God, And let him add everything else. For he knows our needs already. Jesus gives a replacement for the worry and anxiousness. To make the choice to seek first the kingdom of God in all that we do. It should be evident to all that we as Christians should not resemble a person of the world. We have a hope. A trust. A peace. That they cannot understand. That is only found in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our focus isn't to be on worldly possessions, but rather a focus on heavenly treasures. Our passage today ends with verse 34 that states, Where your heart is, your treasure will be also. That correlation between your heart and your treasure isn't a mere suggestion. It is a fact. And I pray for each of us today that our focus is indeed on heavenly treasures. Let us close this morning in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence within us, for your word, Lord, that brings us a more full understanding of who you are and what you want for us. 
We thank you that we can find solace in you, Lord, and that we don't have to be anxious. And we ask, Lord, and pray to you that you would help us to replace stress and worry with faithfulness in you. We thank you that you love us so much, Lord, that we are so valuable to you and that you will provide for us. We thank you, Lord, for this day that you've blessed us with to be in worship and fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for the mothers and ask that you would bless each of those celebrating today. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.